Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 3rd of March for the listening week that begins the 4th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Getting straight to some current events from theroot.com. We have Massachusetts, of all places, is finally putting black voices front and center. Written by Jessica Washington. Published on the 27th. Massachusetts Governor Mara Healey created a Black Empowerment Advisory Council. Here's what it does. Let's be real here. When people think about Massachusetts, and specifically the Boston area, black empowerment isn't exactly top of mind. But on Friday, Massachusetts Governor Mara Healey announced she was creating an advisory council on black empowerment. The council, comprised of 30 black leaders from across the state, will advise Healy on various issues impacting black Americans, including education, health care, and workforce development. The advisory council will be co-chaired by NAACP Boston President Tanisha Sullivan and Vice President of Equitable Business Development for the Massachusetts Housing Finance Agency, Anthony Richards. Massachusetts black residents make tremendous contributions to our state, but far too often they face systemic barriers that hold them back from opportunity, said Healy in a statement Friday. Our administration is committed to bringing people together and centering equity in all that we do, and that requires ensuring that those who are most impacted by our policy have a seat at the decision-making table. How has Massachusetts been addressing centuries of inequality? The state has a lot of ground to make up in terms of equality. In Boston, the median net worth for black households in 2015 was $8. Meanwhile, the median net worth for white households was $247,500. But in recent years, they've been putting in more work Boston established a reparations task force to study how slavery and discrimination have impacted black Bostonians. And last year, the Boston City Council passed a resolution apologizing for Boston's role in the slave trade. These moves, including establishing the Advisory Council, obviously won't erase the state's inequality problem overnight, The state didn't send a black woman to Congress until 2018. But, as other states try to do everything they can to stop people from talking about racial inequality, it's worth pointing out states that are at least nominally trying to move forward. Three reasons why Lori Lightfoot lost her bid for re-election. This one's written by Candace McDuff. Pardon me, that's McDuffie, and it says it was updated on the 1st. An epic loss. Lightfoot is the first sitting mayor in Chicago since 1989 to lose a chance at a second term. 
On Tuesday, Mayor Lori Lightfoot of Chicago lost her bid for a second term. It was an epic loss. She made history four years ago as the first black woman and openly gay person to be elected mayor of the nation's third largest city. Over the years, she has received intense criticism for her leadership, or lack thereof, which was under heavy scrutiny during the pandemic back in 2020. Two candidates, Paul Vias, a former public schools executive, and Brandon Johnson, a county board commissioner, have advanced to the April 4th runoff. Lightfoot is now the first sitting mayor in Chicago since 1989 to lose re-election. During her concession speech on Tuesday, Lightfoot stated that she, quote, will be rooting and praying for our next mayor to deliver for the people of this city for years to come. Here are three reasons why Lightfoot lost her chance for re-election. Lightfoot was in over her head during the pandemic. Back in 2020, the Ohio native secured the position of mayor by winning every single ward in Chicago, securing nearly 75% of the vote over Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle. However, less than a year into her term, Lightfoot was forced to deal with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, She was praised for immediately taking emergency measures and locking down the city. However, she soon found herself at the center of controversy for going back and forth with the police union over vaccine mandates. During the 2020 George Floyd protests, Lightfoot's police department also battled protesters and she had downtown bridges raised to control the crowds. The mayor went head-to-head with Chicago Teachers Union. Early into her term, Lightfoot fought over a contract with the Chicago Teachers Union, which ultimately led to an 11-day teachers' strike. This happened a second time in the beginning of 2022, as the mayor and CTU sparred once again over COVID safety protocols. This time, students couldn't attend school for five days. The final agreement meant that all surveillance testing required parents to definitely opt their children in and that schools would have to go remote for five days if 30% of teachers were absent for two consecutive days or 40% of students were quarantined. Many Chicagoans believed that Lightfoot wasn't tough on crime. Though Lightfoot promised a safer city under her watch, many believe that she did not uphold her end of the bargain. There were the 2020 police brutality protests in which the police department, under Lightfoot's instruction, violently clashed with protesters. Most recently, there has been an increase in gun violence in Chicago as well as an increase in carjackings. Businesses also left the city, as Ken Griffin did with his hedge fund Citadel, citing violence as the reason for relocating his company's headquarters to Miami. Still in the political realm, this one written by Jessica Washington, published on the 2nd. Can Barbara Lee win a tough Senate race? Here's why she thinks it's possible. Representative Barbara Lee sat down with the root to discuss her Senate run and why the Senate needs black women. 
It may surprise you that there are currently no black women in the United States Senate. But Representative Barbara Lee is running to change that. Lee officially announced she was running for California Senator Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat last month. If she wins, Lee will be the third black woman senator and the only sitting black woman in the Senate. Lee sat down with The Root to discuss her run and why she thinks the Senate needs her voice. The Senate needs my perspective, says Lee. Someone who has been a champion of progressive values and, in fact, been able to turn a lot of my lived experiences as a woman, as an African-American woman, a woman of color, into public policy. Only two black women have ever served in the Senate, Vice President Kamala Harris and Senator Carol Mosley. Lee says that black women's per- Pardon me. Black women's experiences intersect deeply with the core issues in our country, but for far too long we've been excluded from the halls of power. Black women have stood in the gap throughout our history, says Lee, and we are not standing in the gap now in the Senate, and we need to be there. Lee says her run is about far more than representation for black women. Economic and racial inequality reproductive justice, environmental justice, policing, housing, and child care are all issues Lee says she would focus on in the Senate. Barbara Lee faces a tough Democratic primary. But to get there, Lee would have to win a crowded primary race. Her opponents, Representatives Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, are well-funded and have significant backing from influential Democrats, Former Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi endorsed Schiff, and Senator Elizabeth Warren endorsed Porter. And although it's early days, they're polling significantly ahead of Lee. But Lee says people shouldn't count her out in the race anytime soon. When you at Mayor Karen Bass, for example, Pardon me, I think they're missing a word. When you look at Mayor Karen Bass, for example, she raised over $9 million dollars, her opponent raised over $100 million, says Lee, referencing Bass's history, pardon me, Bass's victory in the Los Angeles mayoral race over real estate developer Rick Caruso. She said, it's about how you connect with voters. Amy Allison, founder of She the People, a California-based group focused on electing women of color, says underestimating Lee would be a mistake. Money in California is not everything. It's important, but there's more to the story, says Allison, who endorsed Lee. She's known statewide. She's especially revered in Northern California for her long record of services. Key endorsements from Democrats with a lot of name recognition in California will be crucial, says Allison, especially since Pelosi and Warren have already thrown their hats into the ring Allison says an endorsement from a household name in California, like fellow progressive Senator Bernie Sanders, would help even out the playing field. But Lee does have backing from within the state. Yesterday, Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass officially endorsed Lee. How Lee helped mentor the next generation. Lee also has support from among the younger generation of progressives in Congress, The Root spoke to Representative Ayanna Presley, Democrat of Massachusetts, 
who was incredibly excited about Lee's decision to run. Says Presley, She has truly been an inspiration, and it is surreal to say that this is my big sister and someone that I can pick up the phone to call for sound counsel or simply sisterhood. Lee's mentorship extends past Presley. In 2020, she formed Representation Matters, a group that works to elect women of color to Congress and other political offices. Women of color and black women, especially, have a very difficult time raising money for campaigns, fundraising, and I've faced that now, and I've faced that in the past, says Lee. And so I decided that with these young women of color coming in, I was going to start an organization called Representation Matters. The vote that defined her career. Looking back at Lee's decades in office, one vote tends to stick out. After 9 11, Lee was the lone vote against the Iraq War and extending presidential war powers. At the time, she was heavily criticized, but she stands by her decision all these years later. She says, Republicans and Democrats are joining me in trying to repeal both of these authorizations, but this has taken 20 years. But they see now what I saw then that those two military authorizations will set the stage for the use of force in perpetuity. Abortion rights are another issue that Lee, who co chairs the Pro Choice Caucus, has led in Congress. She says the Dobbs decision and these abortion restrictions really impact African American women in a big way. Over the last two decades, Lee has worked to overturn the Hyde Amendment, which blocks federal funding of abortion, making the procedure less accessible for low income people. Her work on abortion access is personal. As a teenager, Lee received an abortion in Tijuana. She says she's lucky to have survived. But many weren't so fortunate. We do not need to go back to days when abortions were unsafe and illegal because it's very devastating in many ways. Despite the intense primary ahead, Lee says she's fighting to win. We speak directly to the voters, says Lee. They know who I am. They understand I see them, I hear them, and I'm going to be their champion. I'm moving on. For some international perspective and opinion piece from the Washington Post Black Pain, Ghana's Gain. This is written by Karen Atia and posted March 3rd. I think and write a lot about the politics of repatriation, repair, and return in the wake of horrific, tra- pardon me, horrific crimes and displacement. A story this week entwined all of these threads. My colleague, Denine L. Brown, wrote about two of the last known survivors of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre who have found new symbolic homes in Ghana. Viola Fletcher, 108, and her brother, Hughes Van Ellis, 102, were granted Ghanaian citizenship at the Embassy of Ghana in D.C. On Tuesday. In 2021, the two visited Ghana and were given ceremonial names and royal titles. Ghana's president, 
Nana Akufo-Addo also gave Fletcher a plot of land. Considering that Tulsa massacre survivors are still legally fighting for reparations from the city, the symbolism is touching. As I wrote last year while in Ghana, the country has a long history of presenting itself as a shelter for black Americans facing persecution abroad. In the early 1960s, Ghana granted scholar W.E.B. Du Bois citizenship after he had experienced years of persecution and FBI surveillance. In more recent years, the Ghanaian government has offered symbolic honors to prominent black American victims of white violence. The Ghana Tourism Authority held a memorial service for George Floyd in June 2020. In Accra last year, Brianna Taylor's name was added alongside Floyd's to the Sankofa Wall, dedicated to notable black figures around the world. I believe that, if possible, black people in the diaspora should visit and learn about Africa. I know and have seen firsthand the sense of relief that belonging, pardon me, the sense of relief and belonging that Ghana provides. However, as a Ghanaian, American, and a former Pan-African idealist, I have mixed feelings about a few things. Ghana, which has been going through its worst economic crisis in decades, has been investing heavily in trying to promote itself as a tourist and investment destination for African Americans. It has also long been dependent on personal remittances from abroad, which consisted of about 6% of the country's gross domestic product in 2020. Yet there are plenty of arguments for why small countries that become over-dependent on tourism set themselves up for increased risk of financial shocks, environmental degradation, and the disempowerment of local populations. If Ghana's government were serious about building diasporic, pardon me, diasporic bridges, It would invest in its schools teaching more about colonialism and the trafficking of enslaved people and about the challenges that Africans in the diaspora have faced. The country should also do more to protect and preserve historic sites, such as the slave forts, instead of allowing them to be ravaged by neglect and climate change. Is it right for a country to overtly use the pain of African Americans to help boost its struggling economy? Sometimes I honestly don't know. Ghanaians themselves have been suffering from unemployment. Ghana also struggles with the issue of police suppressing dissent, and given that Ghana is still proposing to pass a frighteningly draconian anti-LGBTQ bill, Clearly, the country won't be publicly offering shelter to the black LGBTQ community in the United States, and especially not to black trans women who are being killed at alarming rates in this country. I understand the symbolic power of black people returning, quote, home to Africa. The centenarian Tulsa survivors deserve everything in the world, especially represent pardon me, reparations from Tulsa. In the meantime, I hope that getting to see Ghana's warmth will help empower and strengthen them in their long quest for justice in America. 
Next, a couple of articles I've archived from economic sections. The first one comes from Marketplace, and it was written by Kimberly Adams and posted originally February 3rd. Crypto marketing attracted a disproportionate number of black investors. Here's why. Bitcoin had a pretty good start to the year with a gain of almost 40% in January, but that's after losing around 60% of its value in 2022. Last year was hard for many crypto investors with the collapse of FTX and other big scandals in the industry, and some of those losses were particularly keen for black investors. According to the 2022 Ariel Schwab Black Investor Survey, Last year, a quarter of black Americans owned crypto, compared to 15% of white investors. For comparison, the survey found that 58% of black Americans owned stocks, compared to 63% of white Americans. One of the other things that stuck out to us was that, strangely, the black respondents that we surveyed perceived the stock market as more risky and less fair than their white counterparts, said Ariel Patrick, Chief Communications Officer at Ariel Investments, who went on, So that perhaps contributed to their enthusiasm for crypto, which is new and shiny and perhaps has a far shorter track record with fewer crashes, to note, because it's newer. There was quite a bit of crypto marketing specifically targeted at black consumers. The Super Bowl ad with LeBron James talking to his younger self, Spike Lee highlighting crypto ATMs, even ads encouraging crypto investments as a way to build generational wealth. And the campaigns seemed to yield results, said Patrick. Black investors are basically twice as likely to say that crypto was their first investment, 11% compared to only 4% of white investors. Terry Bradford, a payment specialist at the Kansas City Federal Reserve, found additional reasons why black investors were more likely to get into crypto. The wealth gap was a major consideration in all of this, as was distrust of traditional financial services, she said. There was also interest in the ability of crypto and the blockchain more generally to democratize financial services. For much of American history, black people have had limited access to institutions like banks and the stock market. Many saw crypto as a way to get around that system. That's what appealed to Randy Payton when he decided to start investing in cryptocurrencies. He's an automotive writer and marketing consultant who lives just outside of Washington, D.C. He said he got involved in crypto via tokens and metaverse projects. He said, the blockchain gives us the opportunity to not have to depend on traditional banks. We could tokenize our own projects and finance our own projects, whether it's music or film. Once this thing catches on, you don't have to worry about the banks, the middlemen. Bradford at the Kansas City Fed also pointed to the way crypto marketing became part of pop culture. You could find it in lyrics. You find it in social platforms. So that component of it as well was attractive to black investors. Dan Runcie is the founder of Trapital, a newsletter and podcast that covers the business of hip-hop. He interviewed several hip-hop artists and business moguls as crypto rose to prominence and said there's a reason these messages resonated in the black community. There's a broader exposure for those of, pardon me, 
there's a broader exposure of who are the people that a lot of folks in our community look up to historically for years, and it's more likely to over-index on athletes and entertainers than it may be for white folks or people from other backgrounds, he said. And then something like cryptocurrency comes up when it's all heavy push from celebrity influencers and a lot of athletes and entertainers themselves. Then that trickles down to then impacting black investors and the fans of those folks specifically, who themselves are more likely to be black, relatively speaking, than the overall population. But it wasn't just celebrities pitching crypto. Anecdotes about cousins, high school classmates, or former co-workers who suddenly made piles of money from investing in cryptocurrencies, NFTs, and other metaverse projects also drew in many black investors. Randy Payton recently attended a presentation for a multi-level marketing business related to the blockchain and said he's had success investing with such networks in the past. He said, Once I got convinced, I turned 2,500 into about 80,000 in less than a year. Peyton said he withdrew most of his gains ahead of the crash last year. Despite the crypto crash and the headlines and scandals, some investors, like him, still have faith in crypto and the technology behind it. But crypto's success is an economic... Pardon me? Crypto's success as an economic equalizer is still anything but certain. Another take on this topic comes from Clarence Page from the Chicago Tribune, an opinion piece. This was published February 26th and was published in the Daily Camera. Crypto investors show a racial gap. More study is needed. Part of growing old or older, as I still prefer to say, is to become increasingly reluctant to try anything new. This has led me, among other benefits, to avoid cryptocurrency. Crypto, as it also is known, is defined as a digital currency, an alternative form of payment that is created through something else I thoroughly do not understand, Encryption algorithms. Don't ask. Crypto fans whom I have the pleasure of knowing, like my son and his risk-adoring millennial friends, tell me I shouldn't worry about how it works. I should just invest. Right. Suddenly, I was getting first-hand exposure to the crypto craze, and I was not alone. All of this began to sound to me like a Ponzi scheme, a form of fraud in which belief in the success of a bogus enterprise is fostered by the payment of quick returns to the first investors from money invested by later investors. I have steered myself away from such schemes because I am a tightwad. So, while LeBron James, Spike Lee, and other crypto ad stars got richer, I sat back on my wallet and tried not to think about the potential crypto wealth I was leaving for other people to invest. I was not even swayed by New York Mayor Eric Adams, who startled the world by asking that his first three paychecks be converted into Bitcoin and Ethereum, two popular cryptocurrencies. I felt somewhat vindicated, pardon me, vindicated when the crypto scandals began to erupt, most famously in the form of Sam Bankman, pardon me, that Sam Bankman, Freed, founder of FTX, a cryptocurrency trading platform and its hedge fund arm, Alameda Research, 
His reported net worth of $16 billion in early November was gone a few days later when he filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Adams and his fellow crypto fans were largely unmoved, arguing for his faith that what goes down must eventually come back up. No, all is not totally lost. Crypto, like other currencies, often goes through boom-and-bust cycles. But what really caught my eye was the latest Ariel Schwab Black Investor Survey, a leading annual report on investment patterns by race, conducted for the past 24 years by Chicago-based Ariel Investments and Charles Schwab. Black investors, the survey reports, have a higher investment rate, 25%, in crypto than white investors. The figure is even higher for black investors under age 40 at 38%. That's compared with only 15% for white investors who own crypto and 29% for those under 40. And the black investors appear to be bigger risk takers in this risky investment. They're more than twice as likely to say crypto was their first investment. 11% of those with compared to 4% for white investors. What's most surprising in this survey, said Ariel Patrick, Chief Communications Officer at Ariel Investments are the racial disparities in attitudes expressed by the surveyed investors. Black respondents we surveyed perceive the stock market as more risky and less fair than their white counterparts do, she said. It may be that the newness of crypto and its shorter track record is a big attraction for the black respondents. And young investors may be more responsive to crypto marketing campaigns which have included Super Bowl ads featuring James and Lee. Hip-hop culture has also made crypto part of the swaggering vocabulary and lyrics by rap artists like Jay-Z. But at a recent Lending Tree survey report, black crypto investors were likelier than white crypto investors to believe their investment was no less safe than, say, a bank account insured by the FDIC from which they had borrowed money to make their investment. So, before you flock to crypto, as with any other investment, do your homework. Next, an article that was published at the beginning of this year's Black History Month on February 7th. W.E.B. Du Bois' Black History Month and the Importance of African American Studies. This is written for The Conversation by Joel Abrams. me. No, forgive me. The author is Chad Williams, who is professor of history and African and African American studies at Brandeis, co-author Augusta Spector. The opening days of Black History Month 2023 have coincided with controversy about the teaching and broader meaning of African American studies. On February 1st, 2023, the College Board released a revised curriculum for its newly developed Advanced Placement African American Studies course. Critics have accused the College Board of caving to political pressure stemming from conservative backlash and the decision, pardon me, the decision of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to ban the course from public high schools in Florida because of what he characterized as its radical content and inclusion of topics such as critical race theory, reparations, and the Black Lives Matter movement. 
On February 11, 1951, an article by the 82-year-old black scholar activist W.E.B. Du Bois titled Negro History Week appeared in the short-lived New York newspaper The Daily Compass. As one of the founders of the NAACP in 1909 and the editor of its powerful magazine The Crisis, Du Bois is considered by historians and intellectuals from many academic disciplines as America's preeminent thinker on race. His thoughts and opinions still carry weight throughout the world. Du Bois's words in that 1951 article are especially prescient today, offering a reminder about the importance of Black History Month and what is at stake in current conversations about African American studies. Du Bois began his Daily Compass commentary by praising Carter G. Woodson, founder of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, who established Negro History Week in 1926. The week would eventually become Black History Month. Du Bois described the annual commemoration as Woodson's, quote, crowning achievement. Woodson was the second African-American to earn a doctorate in history from Harvard University. Du Bois was the first. Du Bois and Woodson did not always see eye to eye, however, as I explore in my new book, The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War, the two pioneering scholars always respected each other. Reckoning with History and Reclaiming the Past Du Bois's connection to and appreciation of Negro History Week grew during the late 1940s and throughout the 1950s. During this time, whether in public speeches or published articles, he never missed an opportunity to acknowledge the importance of Negro History Week. In the February 11, 1951 article, Du Bois reflected that his own contributions to Negro History Week, quote, lay in my long effort as a historian and sociologist to make America and Negroes themselves aware of the significant facts of Negro history. Summarizing his work from his first book, The Suppression of the African Slave Trade, published in 1896, through his magnum opus, Black Reconstruction in America, published in 1935. Du Bois told readers of the Daily Compass piece that much of his career was spent trying to correct the distortion of history in regard to Negro enfranchisement. By doing so, the nation would hopefully become, Du Bois wrote further, conscious that this part of our citizenry were normal human beings, who had served the nation credibly and were still being deprived of their credit by ignorant and prejudiced historians. In addition to championing Negro History Week, Du Bois applauded other black scholars like E. Franklin Frazier, Charles Johnson, and Shirley Graham, who were steadily attacking the omissions and distortions of black people in school textbooks. Du Bois went on to chronicle the achievements of African Americans in science, religion, art, literature, and the military, making clear that black people had a history to be proud of. Du Bois, however, questioned what deeper meaning these achievements held to the issues facing black people in the present. What now does Negro History Week stand for, he asked in the 1951 article. Shall American Negroes continue to learn to be, 
quote, proud of themselves? Or is there a higher, broader aim for their research and study? In other words, he asserted, as it becomes more universally known that Negroes contributed to America in the past, more must logically be said and taught concerning the future. The time had come, Du Bois believed, for African Americans to stop striving to be merely the equal of white Americans. Black people needed to cease emulating the worst traits of America, flamboyance, individualism, greed, and financial success at any cost, and support labor unions, pan-Africanism, and anti-colonial struggle. He especially encouraged the systematic study of the imperial and economic roots of racism. Quote, Here is a field for Negro History Week. Black History and Black Struggle Looking ahead, Du Bois declared that if Negro History Week remained true to the ideals of Carter Woodson and followed the logical development of the Negro race in America, it would not confine itself to the study of the past, nor boasting and vainglory over what we have accomplished. It will not mistake wealth as the measure of America, nor big business and noise as world domination, Du Bois wrote in his article. Instead, Du Bois believed Negro History Week would, quote, concentrate on study of the present, not be afraid of radical literature, and, above all else, advocate for peace and voice eternal opposition against war between the white and colored peoples of the earth. Were he alive today, Du Bois would certainly have much to say about current debates around the teaching of African-American history and the larger significance of African-American studies. Du Bois died on August 27, 1963, in Accra, Ghana. But he left behind his clairvoyant words that remind us of the connections between African-American studies and movements for black liberation, along with how the teaching of African-American history has always challenged racist and exclusionary narratives of the nation's past. Du Bois also reminds us that Black History Month is rooted in a legacy of activism and resistance, one that continues in the present. Next, an appreciation for Wayne Shorter. This first article is the obituary from coming from the Daily Camera, March 3rd. Wayne Shorter, jazz pioneer, dies at 89. This is from the Associated Press. It does not tell me an uh, author here. Dateline Los Angeles. Wayne Shorter, an influential jazz innovator whose lyrical, complex jazz compositions and pioneering saxophone playing sounded through more than half a century of American music, has died. He was 89. Shorter died Thursday surrounded by his family in Los Angeles, said Alice Kingsley, a representative of the multi-Grammy winner. No cause of death was given. Visionary composer, saxophonist, visual artist, devout Buddhist, devoted husband, father, and grandfather, Range, me, Wayne Shorter has embarked on a new journey as part of his extraordinary life, 
departing the earth as we know it in search of an abundance of new challenges and creative possibilities. A statement released by Kingsley said, It called him a gentle spirit who was, quote, always inquisitive and constantly exploring. Shorter, a tenor saxophonist, made his debut in 1959 and would go on to be a foundational member of two of the most seminal jazz groups, Art Blakely's, pardon me, Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, that's how it's typed here in any case, and the Miles Davis Quintet. Over the next eight decades, Shorter's wide-spanning, pardon me, wide-spanning collaborations would include co-founding the 70s jazz band Weather Report, some 10 album appearances with Joni Mitchell and further explorations with Carlos Santana and Steely Dan. Many of Shorter's textured and elliptical compositions, including Speak No Evil, Black Nile, Footprints, and Nefertiti, became modern jazz standards and expanded the harmonic horizons of jazz across some of its most fast-evolving eras. Herbie Hancock once said of Shorter in Miles Davis's second great quintet, The master writer to me in that group was Wayne Shorter. He still is a master. Wayne was one of the few people who brought music to Miles that didn't get changed. Hancock praised Shorter for his musical expertise and leaving a special mark in his life. Wayne Shorter, my best friend, left us with courage in his heart love and compassion for all, and a seeking spirit for the eternal future, said Hancock in a statement. He was ready for his rebirth. As it is with every human being, he is irreplaceable and was able to reach the pinnacle of excellence as a saxophonist, composer, orchestrator, and recently composer of a masterful opera. I miss being around him and his special Wayne-isms, but I carry his spirit within my heart always. As a band leader, Shorter released more than 25 albums and won 12 Grammy Awards. In 2015, he was given a Lifetime Achievement Grammy. Last month, he won a Grammy in the category of Best Improvised Jazz Solo for Endangered Species with Leo Genovese. Shorter's work has been performed by several popular symphonies, including Chicago, Detroit, and Lyon, along with the National Polish Radio, Symphonic, and Orpheus Chamber Orchestras. In his career, Shorter has had more than 200 compositions and was a Kennedy Center honoree in 2018. Maestro Wayne Shorter was our hero, guru, and beautiful friend, said Don Wass, the president of Blue Note Records, the label where he recorded several albums. His music possessed a spirit that came from somewhere way, way beyond and made this world a much better place. Likewise, his warmth and wisdom enriched the lives of everyone who knew him. And for more on Wayne Shorter, excerpts from the article written by Felix Contreras for NPR Music, Shorter's influential career spanned decades from the hard bop of the late 1950s to genre-defying small group jazz in the 60s, all the way through the birth of rock-influenced jazz in the 70s. Shorter's soprano and tenor saxophones offered sonic clarion calls for change and innovation. Wayne Shorter, born 
August 25, 1933, in Newark, New Jersey, was known as a deep thinker on and off the bandstand, ingrained with an intense curiosity that began during his childhood. After studying music at New York University in the mid-1950s, he joined a band that brought him to the attention of the jazz world as a composer and saxophonist, Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers. In the mid-60s, Shorter solidified the second coming of the Miles Davis Quintet, joining Davis, bassist Ron Carter, drummer Tony Williams, and pianist Herbie Hancock. It was there that he was able to indulge a passion for the intellectual that once prompted one of his NYU professors to wonder why he wasn't a philosophy major. The six years I was with Miles, we never talked about music, Shorter told NPR in 2013. Miles, on his table, he had scores of Kuzovitsky, the conductor, and then he had another book on architecture and another book on law, just sitting on the table, and then he'd talk about clothes and fashion. During his time with Davis, Wayne Shorter also recorded a series of highly regarded solo albums. His relationship with the iconic Blue Note Records from 1964 to 70 resulted in a number of now-classic recordings, including Juju, recorded with members of John Coltrane's quartet, Speak No Evil, recorded with two fellow Miles Davis bandmates, and The Soothsayer, featuring fellow Blue Note artist Freddie Hubbard. Many of the albums contain shorter compositions that are now considered jazz standards. He stayed with Davis after the breakup of the second quintet when the trumpeter experimented with electric instruments. Shorter then joined another Davis alum, keyboardist Joe Zawinul, to co-found Weather Report, which became one of the most renowned jazz rock bands of the 70s. In a statement released by Shorter's publicist, Alice Kingsley, Hancock described as Shorter's closest friend for more than six decades, wrote, Wayne Shorter, my best friend, left us, left us with courage in his heart, love and compassion for all, and a seeking spirit for the eternal future. The latter part of Wayne Shorter's life was marked by almost 50 years of devotion to Nichiren Buddhism, a Japanese strain of the popular religion. Shorter told NPR in 2013, I was hearing about Buddhism, but then I started to look into it, and I started to open up and find out what was going on in the rest of the world instead of just the West. Those spiritual teachings influenced the musical ideas he applied to jazz at the start of the new millennium when he formed the Wayne Shorter Quartet, featuring a hand-picked group of much younger musicians. That group's recorded work was captured by Shorter's return to Blue Note Records after four decades with a series of releases that showcased the band's intense improvisations on Shorter's compositions, old and new. He said, We have a phrase in Buddhism, Hom Nim Yo. It means, From this moment forward is the first day of my life. So put 100% into the moment that you're in, because the present moment is the only time when you can change the past and the future. Next, uh, we have a review of a book, Black Cloud Rising. Black Cloud Rising 
is a compelling and important historical novel that takes us back to an extraordinary moment when enslaved men and women were shedding their bonds and embracing freedom. This is a novel by David Wright Falade, F-A-L-A-D-E. By fall of 1863, Union forces had taken control of Tidewater, Virginia, and established a toehold in eastern North Carolina, including along the Outer Banks. Thousands of freed slaves and runaways flooded the Union lines, but Confederate irregulars still roamed the region. In December, the newly formed African Brigade, a unit of these former slaves led by General Edward Augustus Wilde, a one-armed, impassioned abolitionist, set out from Portsmouth to hunt down the rebel guerrillas and extinguish their threat. From this little-known historical episode comes Black Cloud Rising, a dramatic, moving account of these soldiers, men who only weeks earlier had been enslaved, but were now Union infantrymen setting out to fight their former owners. At the heart of the narrative is Sergeant Richard Etheridge, the son of a slave and her master, raised with some privileges but constantly reminded of his place. Deeply conflicted about his past, Richard is eager to show himself to be a credit to his race as the African Brigade conducts raids throughout the area occupied by the Confederate partisan rangers. He and his comrades recognize that they are fighting for more than territory. Wilde's mission is to prove that his troops can be trusted as soldiers in combat, and, because many of the men have fled from the very plantations in their path, each raid is also an opportunity to free loved ones left behind. For Richard, this means the possibility of reuniting with Fanny, the woman he hopes to marry one day. With powerful depictions of the bonds formed between fighting men and heart-rending scenes of sacrifice and courage, Black Cloud Rising offers a compelling and nuanced portrait of enslaved men and women crossing the threshold to freedom. Once again, that is a novel, Black Cloud Rising, by David Wright, that's W-R-I-G-H-T, David Wright Falade, and it is available as an audiobook. I believe it comes from Grove Press. And continuing with entertainment and media news, this next one comes from a daily camera in Boulder. Posted March 3rd. From music, Brothers of Brass headed to Estes Park, written by John Wenzel. Brothers of Brass had, pardon me, has an advantage over most Denver bands when rehearsing for the city's highest profile musical gigs. They're always ready. Whether busking on the 16th Street Mall or busting out songs in front of Mayor Michael Hancock, At the 2022 State of the City Address, the band's mix of traditional southern brass music and pop hits from Beyoncé and Michael Jackson can't help but draw curious crowds. Along with holiday fireworks and emergency sirens, they are the loudest thing in the city. We keep the wardrobe and music on deck so we can just show up and do our thing, said band leader and founder Khalil Simon, who plays tuba in the NOLA-style band, 
Our songs and dress attire have evolved over the years, but we always try to keep ourselves mentally ready. The band, which varies from six to eight members these days, has found much of its success at unofficial locations up and down urban Denver's corridors, including their self-defined role as a let-out band for Fish and Dead and & Company concerts and events at the Denver Performing Arts Complex. They can earn thousands of dollars in tips in a couple of hours at those events, said band members. We used to make quite a bit more when we rolled up to public spaces with an eight-piece, but that's diminished, said Armando Lopez, 30, who plays saxophone. We were able to do a living wage for probably six to eight people during the peak of it, but that was short-lived. The band, which started in Atlanta in 2014, has increasingly secured private and public bookings on indoor stages, including playing for a crowd at Meow Wolf Denver to celebrate Mardi Gras. The unique mix keeps them nimble, guerrilla gigs and the egress of public venues, but also middle school auditoriums, jazz festivals, and on Saturday, March 4th, a free concert at Ophelia's Electric, pardon me, yes, Electric Soapbox in Denver. After that, they're scheduled to play Estes Park's Frozen Dead Guys Days Fest on March 18th. As the group prepares its new single, pardon me, I have to interject as a local, I didn't know, I thought that it was Netherland that had Frozen Dead Guys Fests, but maybe Estes Park does too. Pardon me. That's March 18th. And as the group prepares its new single, Mile High, for a March 3rd release, which is also known as 303 Day, on Denver-based Color Red music label, Brothers of Brass is moving forward with attempts to cross into the pop music realm, but downtown Denver's trickle of pedestrian traffic and the band's ongoing quest for legitimacy with the city still threatens to keep them at arm's length. We were one of the first bands to play publicly after the pandemic started because everyone wanted to have their private parties, said Simon, 29. So the song Mile High is an anthem inspired by the city of Denver and recorded in my basement because we couldn't do anything during the pandemic. We're trying to diversify our portfolio. Not everyone is a fan of brass band music. The band loves and has played all over Denver and the country with gigs outside Madison Square Garden and other national venues, but its unapologetic pop-ups have, at times, placed them at odds with angry city officials and some downtown residents. As with most artists, the pandemic has ravaged the group's earning potential by pausing and restricting performances and audiences, but their conflicts started before that. The Brothers of Brass in the past has clashed with police for playing in front of the Denver Performing Arts Complex, where shows from the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, Opera Colorado, Colorado Ballet, and Colorado Symphony empty onto the corner of 14th and Curtis Streets. There they play for crowds of more than 1,000 people who must weave around them and their incredible volume while snapping photos for social media. The band also live-streams its own social accounts. Nearby downtown residents have been known to berate them face-to-face over their volume and call in noise complaints to the Denver Police Department, in addition to turf wars with local businesses and other street musicians who are drowned out or displaced by their act. 
That came to a head in the late 2010s when the city of Denver began looking for ways to bring us down, according to Simon. But we have been legitimized by the city in other ways, like playing for city council members, said Lopez. And last December, our busy season, we didn't get any interference playing for the Nutcracker and Christmas Carol audiences. It would be cool to have the official okay, so we're not looking over our shoulders for somebody trying to shut us down. The band's most lucrative gigs are still to come this year. Although Simon is still the only full-time member at the moment, Lopez, a chemist with a degree from Colorado School of Mines, and the others have plenty to keep them busy outside the band's schedule. But as Simon noted, they're ready to don their matching dress outfits and horns at a moment's notice. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by funds from the Boulder County and Denver Regional Council of Governments Area Agencies on Aging. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.